All right. Let's talk about workplace safety. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And if your eyes rolled back in your head and you find your fingers sliding towards the Marcus played button, stop right there because I see you. I know all those tricks. I do them too. All right. But this episode and what we're talking about today isn't that kind of workplace safety. We're here to talk about building psychologically safe workspaces today, which in our opinion is a conversation that is so crucial to have, especially as we're trying to reimagine workspaces in this era of COVID. And you'll want to hear this whole conversation because there are knowledge bombs just being tossed around by our guests throughout this entire episode. Totally agreed. Today, we're talking to Jeff Harry, who is the founder of Rediscover Your Play and who works with companies and individuals to lift their veil of BS in order to make their work more fulfilling and rediscover their joyful purpose, all while removing what is getting in the way of their success. Isn't that also like the best job description ever? I'm here for any job description that includes BS in the title. Amazing. Right. So this conversation got us thinking, and we hope it gets you thinking too. After this episode, which sadly, tears is the very last in our summer of action. Our ask is this, tell all of your friends, say it with us to listen to this episode. And for this episode in particular, any friend in a work environment should definitely listen. And then look around, right? If you are either virtual or in person, take a good hard look at your workplace. How can you make it more psychologically safe for everyone who works there? Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We're your biracial hosts, Sarah and Misasha. We're here to talk about how we can make change. And we each have our own spheres of influence. For many people, those spheres of influence are things like, let's start at our kitchen table or the voting booth or our wallets or in relevant to this conversation, perhaps the workplace. But a lot of people tell us how heavy this feels to learn about racism, to be able to stand against white privilege and patriarchy, to put ourselves out there in a serious way with serious consequences at a place like work. So to help us talk about how to make this a little more lighthearted and yet still impactful, we bring you Jeff Harry. Can you introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, I'm Jeff Harry with Rediscover Your Play, and I create psychologically safe workspaces using positive psychology and play. And if anybody has listened to this podcast ever before, (laughs) they know that I am a total nerd in positive psychology land. So Sarah's been waiting for this, you guys, forever. <laughs> you have no idea. I've been wanting to bring this into the show for so long. What is the rationale you have for why we would want to build more play into work, right? So why do you want to do that? And when you say that, what is the resistance you normally encounter with this idea? Sure. So first, you know, just tying into positive psychology for a moment, right? The basis of positive psychology is other people matter, right? And like that, isn't that what the workplace should be? Shouldn't we, if we're going to be devoting 2,500 hours a year to work, shouldn't we be enjoying it more? And what I say to people all the time, I say, you're already playing at work. You're playing a role that you think other people expect of you, right? Like I'm a senior manager and I'm very serious and I know what I'm doing. Why not 
play someone that actually is more like you. That's all I'm arguing for, right? Because when you actually can be not that cliche, like faux authentic self at work, but when you can actually speak truth to power and have hard conversations about race, about power, about patriarchy, you actually create psychologically safe workspaces, which are more productive, boosted morale, boosted productivity, lower turnover, you know, and people that just want to be at work. And that's the type of spaces I want to be at and create. (laughs) You might have just blown my mind a little bit because you're spot on with the we are all pretending and playing a role anyway. Also, like the reason why, you know, it's true is it's exhausting. Monday wakes, you wake up Monday morning. And if you get like an uh, to go to work, it's because, you know, you need to play a role. And you know that it's been tiring for you to play this role. And what is it they say, you know, culture is defined by the worst behavior tolerated at your job. So that is what, not the values, not the mission statement, not what you were onboarded with, but whether Chad is being insulting and rude to everybody else in the workplace, that's the culture. And what happens when people see stuff like that, all those small betrayals of trust keep happening. And then you start wondering, like, do I want to be here anymore? And you start feeling more burnt out, you know, and the more we can actually address stuff and confront it and be like, Chad is being toxic. What are we doing to address this? Not only are you trying to address that individual, but you're really setting the tone for the culture of what type of like community do we want to have at this job? Uh, Spot on. So then about that toxic environment, right? When they are like that and we do need to address it, what advice do you have for how people can navigate toxicity and challenging conversations a little more smoothly? Let's get into it. Okay. So I got like a process that I do with my friend Gary Ware. And I don't know, can I swear in this podcast? Bring your whole authentic self, would you? A whole self. So my friend Gary Ware and I created this workshop about like a year and a half ago called Dealing with A-Holes at Work Through Play. Like that was the name of the workshop. And it was all about eradicating a-holes from the workplace. Why? Because we felt all this trauma at our old job. So we started doing all this research and we found out that in the last five years, Fortune 500 companies alone have lost $223 billion due to turnover just because of toxicity. And these are only the companies that are willing to admit that there was toxicity at work. So we know that number is even larger, right? So we're starting to run these workshops. You know, we offered it, we're thinking no one's gonna pick it. And then all of a sudden, like South by Southwest wants it. And then we went to Australia for it. And I remember we were running it in Australia and people were both laughing and crying And the reason why was because they thought they were the only ones that left their job because of a toxic person, because of an a-hole, because of a Chad. And I'm sorry if Chad's listening, (laughs) but we're going to use this example. So the ways in which to actually approach this is this is all about boundaries. This is all about setting the tone, right? And again, like I said earlier, it's like what behavior is tolerated. So there's four different ways or four different approaches. And I'll pick, I'll start from the easiest to implement, but not as impactful to the hardest to implement and really impactful. So the first way really easy to implement is a redirect, right? So that a-hole is coming to, to your meetings. Hey, Chad, let me save you a meeting. We're going to yes and and brainstorm in this meeting. I'm going to save you this entire time. And then when the ideas, we've gathered all of them, I'm going to come and meet you 
you know, face to face. And then your job, because you're so great at it, is to poke holes through that. So that's one way, redirecting. Another way is setting the boundary at the meeting. Chad keeps cutting Sarah, Masasha, and Jeff off over and over again. Okay, listen, we get each other's back. Every time he cuts you off, I'm going to come back at him. You know, but I'm going to be like, whoa, we need to really hear what Sarah has to say because she's the project lead on this. And we're going to have to keep getting each other's back for the next three to six months and just start occupying that meeting back slowly because it takes that long, right? Each and every time, calling him out each and every time. But in a way where it's just like, I want to hear more about this person. So you're not attacking him, right? You know, and then there's the more confrontational one where you would meet Chad afterwards and you'd be like, hey, you know, when you cut off Sarah, when you talked over Jeff, what you communicated to me was that and communicated to the rest of the team that you don't want to hear what we have to say. Is that true? Because I think a lot of times we assume that the a-hole is doing it for a certain reason. We don't know. So you don't attack the character. You attack, you address the behavior and the impact that it's having. Now, they might be like, oh, I didn't know this. I'm an engineer. I have really poor social skills, sorry. you know. Or they're gonna be like, F you, I'm gonna do whatever I want because I'm Chad and I get to do whatever I want. I've been here for forever. So if they come at you that way, that's when you, and this is the biggest mistake that a lot of people make, that's when you not only approach their supervisor or HR, usually when we approach them, we complain. And that's not the tactic. The tactic you want to approach to these people that are in certain periods of power or positions of power is the impact that it's having. Yo, I know that Chad's been here for a really long time. I know that Chad brings in a million dollars a year. He also got four of our staff to quit last year. That costs us $1.5 million. Are we okay losing half a million dollars a year? Are you okay losing less in your bonus? Like this is the impact it's having. Hey, HR, are you okay with dealing with a lawsuit that's going to happen a few years down the road? You know this because you've dealt with that last lawsuit. So you start mentioning the impact that's having. And then they're like, oh, well, I don't want to deal with this. And you keep doing this because this takes like, I remember doing this one, one individual, it took us like a few years of continuously going to that supervisor and being like, is this an issue you really want to deal with? And then finally that person got some therapy, right? And then this is the last one. And this is the hardest one is you have to deal with your inner Chad, your inner critic, that inner mean voice, because for some reason you believe that Chad should talk over you. You believe that Chad should get paid more than you. But once you're like, wait a minute, what am I talking about? I should be Chad's boss. I should get double Chad gets paid. I am not going to tolerate this anymore. The next time Chad says anything mean to you, right in front of everybody, you're like, Chad, don't ever speak to me that way. And then it's just like, oh, Sarah just stepped up to Chad. Wait a minute. I can step up to Chad too. And then everyone starts setting that same boundary with him and be like, don't talk to me that way. Don't talk to me that way. And then Chad has a choice. He either changes his behavior or he bounces because it's not that fun place that he can be very abusive anymore. So those are the processes. And it takes a while. I just went through like the 10 years basically that I spent in big law. And like, I was like, oh yeah, I've known a bunch of chads and there are varying things that could have happened at the time. And a lot of that didn't happen, you know? So I think what you're saying is super impactful because of the power that we have as individuals that we have as a group too, in dealing with that toxic individual. But 
you know, I want to ask what happens when you have a toxic culture too that's set from the top, right? Because I'm thinking in particular about Basecamp or, you know, and yeah. we're recording this in May of 2021. And so I feel like Basecamp is all that I've read about recently. And, you know, their proclamation for those who aren't as familiar about, you know, removing politics and removing talking about any of that in the workplace. And then I saw a news feed article that said that 40% of base camp basically quit in response to hearing that, which I think is a pretty powerful proclamation as to how people yep. really felt about that. So Jeff, I really want to hear what you think about, you know, what base camp did there, that response. And I was also asked recently if I thought this was an outlier or if this is going to be a trend that companies are going to try and put those boundaries in place and sort of do that. What do you think? I think this was a strategy that companies wanted to try and now they're going to actually second guess that because the reality is, is like, so you hear this at work all the time. You can show up as your full authentic self, be your full self. And then you are. And then they're like, whoa, not that though. Not politics, not like talking about gender and race, but you, you, just the nice stuff, the stuff that doesn't make me uncomfortable. Right. So, you know, the challenge with a place like, well, you know, with Basecamp, it was like, yo, we're going to actually call you to task for this. You know, because I tell people this all the time as well in that whole strategy that I laid out. One of the other things you have to consider is, is it healthy for me to be here? You know, like if you're waking up, you know, and you have that ill feeling that actually starts to show up in actual physical ailments, you know, bad sleep, you know, bad eating habits, all the, like, imagine what is someone's in your money or your life. They ask this question of how much do you actually get paid? And someone's like, well, what do you mean? How much do I actually get paid? Well, calculate your hourly rate. Well, my hourly rates, I don't know. Like, let's say it's a hundred dollars an hour. Well, how much do you spend on happy hours? How much do you spend on therapy? How much do you spend dressing up? All of those things you have to roll. How many hours have you dealt talking about Chad after work? When you add that all up, you start to realize you're like, I'm not getting paid a hundred dollars an hour. I'm getting paid like $8 an hour when I look at how much money I have to spend to actually deal with all the BS. So I think it was great for the people to just be like, you know, at Basecamp, they were like, I'm out, you know, because Basecamp was considered like such a progressive place, right? All these like tech companies, especially in Silicon Valley are like, well, you know, we're all about, you know, being open and like, you can have all the vacation you want. Don't give me that BS, dude. You No one's taking vacation. You know, don't put that ping pong table in that slide and then say, we're all happy here. No one's going down that slide. Everyone's stressed out. All right. Unless, you know, they're only going down that slide when they're late for a meeting. Okay. So like, we have to really call the task. And I think that's what all of these workers did at Basecamp, and it's going to send this message to the rest of that industry and companies in general. And I'm trying to communicate this as well as like, yo, post pandemic, if you're not bringing more shared humanity and more emotional intelligence and more progressive values, like into the workplace, like action oriented, you're going to lose so many people because Gen Zers don't deal with that BS. They just are not they're done. They can find another job. And right now there's such a discussion on like CNN and MSNBC about like, why are people not coming back to work? I can't believe we can't fill all these like jobs. Yeah, because these jobs pay crap 
And you have to step your game up to actually bring people back to the office. I love that. And I noticed like when you were talking about all of that, me, Sasha and my, like our heads are bobbing like, oh yeah, we know those toxic environments. We know about bringing your whole self. Like, yes, I get that. So, you know, you mentioned earlier also, I want to come back to this idea you mentioned in the meeting about, you know, there's Chad and then Jeff and me, Sasha and Sarah band together to get each other's back you know, the role of allies. Yeah. And I know you, in your work, you focus a lot on helping men do better. And we talk on our show a lot about helping white people do better. Yeah. So what advice do you have? What practical talk do you have for people to go beyond like performative allyship to like yes. really being in the work together, not just supporting your work, but really doing the work for ourselves to move the collective forward? Yeah. So I love this analogy that my friend Damian Taylor told me. So the allyship that he's seen, it, he gave this analogy of like, imagine you're you know, in an apartment and, you know, your white allies are living on the second floor and you're on, you know, the bottom floor. And then there's this massive flood that happens on the second floor and it floods the first floor. So then the white ally comes downstairs and is like, man, look at this flood. Oh, it's so bad. Oh, it's so horrible. Do you want me to like do a GoFundMe? Do you want me to like protest? You know, what do you want me to do to deal with this flood? And it's like, handle your business up on the second floor. Like, that's where the problem is. It's not here. Like, stop Asian hate. It's not Asians hating on Asians, okay? Right? And, you know, it's not black on black. It's y'all issue. You need to start checking the other people that are in power. You need to start using that privilege to actually have those conversations, right? So a lot of times when I first, you know, I'm talking to people that are like, well, how can I be an ally? First thing, listen. Can you just stop suggesting what, you know, these movements that have been working for, you know, decades on and you just come in, you're like, I got this great idea. We should do, you know, like, I don't know, some new social media campaign. You're like, really? Is that the reason why the activism is not why we're not so organized? So I think a lot of allies need to just come to stuff and listen and show up in that way. And then don't try to lead and then the only time in which we would need you to lead is when you are speaking to other white people about the issues that maybe they can't hear from us because they see us as, you know, I don't know, maybe the color part is getting in the way, but they'll actually listen to you, you know, Samantha, Karen, you know, they'll more so they'll listen to white fragility, that book, white fragility, but they won't read, you know, Ibrahim's book. You know, so it's just like, okay, but then again, and that right fragility is a perfect example of this, right? It's like, you want to be able to help and translate, but you also don't want to take up too much space. Like that example of that white fragility book took up like, all right, now I'm the, you know, DEI expert. And it's like, whoa, there's so many people of color experts that have been doing this work for so long and didn't have the privilege to write a book like that. So if anything, instead of you now running all these white fragility workshops, you should be getting people and being like, you need to go work with this organization. You need to go work with this organization run by people of color instead of like always taking it over, almost colonizing the movement. You have to be really careful not to colonize it. And I see a lot of white people do that all the time. So true. Now, speaking of white people, you asked about the title of our show as we were just getting started here. And I know you did a segment on this already, but for those who haven't listened to the stuff, and you, we'll have to ask you where people can find you after this, but tell us a little bit about what you think it means to be a white lady nowadays. 
Sure. So this is not coming from this. It's coming from my friend, Angie Cole, who is the white lady whisperer for me. I feel like she's the one that I'm like, explain to me this white person's, you know, approach, because I'm trying to understand it. Yes, please. And give us your background, because I just realized we haven't actually asked for your identity background because you're not a white man. Oh, yeah. So I am. My dad is Vincentian in the Caribbean where this volcano just erupted. And my mom is from the Philippines. Right. So and I grew up in the white suburbs of Chicago. So most of the time I had to deal in white spaces and almost be considered a chameleon because I could be any race, you know, so like I just dealt with this, you know, standard racism that we always did deal with and like had to do a lot of code switching. Right. So one thing that Angie was telling me about, you know, with that a lot of white women have to deal with is one of the biggest characteristics of white supremacist culture, which is perfection. You know, they always feel like they have to be perfect. So when the BLM resurgence happened last year and a lot of white women were being called out on stuff like, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Then a lot of people that I noticed were like, well, I just can't do anything now. So I guess I won't do anything. And it's like, no, don't use that aspect to get out of this or don't use, oh, you know, I'm doing this support of BLM, but like, is, are we doing it all summer? Like, do we have to, how long, how long is this going on? Dude, our download numbers spiked after George Floyd. And it was, I was like, when does it come back down? We were just watching it. Like, when is white people going to be less interested? Right. Like I have a black box. Is that, I mean, I'm good. And I think a lot of times we don't recognize what white supremacist culture characteristics are. And I'm just pulling up some of them, but like perfectionism is a huge one. Individualism is a huge one. That objectivity, like, let me just be objective about that. Or like a lot of black and white thinking, right? Or very defensive, right? And a lot of like paternalism, a lot of patriarchy. So, you know, for white allies, they really have to be asking themselves, am I taking on a lot of white supremacist aspects and even how I'm approaching the support that I'm doing. Because if it's individualism, that's when you start colonizing. That's when you're like, well, I'm going to make my own thing and I'm going to, you know, I'll run my own book club and we're going to run our book club that's going to read White Fragility and we're going to, you know, and then we're going to watch a bunch of Netflix videos and then, you know, and then we're going to go to some protests in the suburbs and, okay, I'm tired. All right. Like, can we get back to what we were doing before? And it's just like, come on, man. Like, you know, I don't need you to be here all the time, but I need you to be here consistently and actually to care. And again, also to actually feel uncomfortable, to be in the minority, to put yourself in that position. Because I think a lot of people in positions of power have never felt like the minority. Now, one ironic part of this is I saw this tweet and I'll find out, but I remember there was this tweet from this one black dude that was saying, do y'all know that a lot of white people don't have places where they can just be real. <laughs> like he was actually saying we code switch. So we go from like, you know, uppity to like being real. But for some people, some white people, it was just like, I just found out from them. They have no place where they actually can be real. And I was like, what? And I don't know if that's always true, but that's also, again, another part of white supremacist culture of feeling like you have to be perfect and keep up with the Joneses all the time. That'd be freaking exhausting, wouldn't it? Oh, yes. Well, and I think that character, what you were talking about is so spot on when you're talking about 
the white reaction to BLM and trying to figure out the perfect ways to be an ally, right? And then when you don't hit that perfect way or you say the wrong thing, right? Or your kid says the wrong thing or and then you're, you know, your head explodes and you're just like, well, this is it. Like, I don't know. And now I'm tired and we're just going to throw in the towel. And I think right. this is so fundamental to what we've all been talking about, about the intentionality and about the consistency and about how, you know, this is a mindset shift, right? This is not, you know, your black square or your one training or, you know, you read a book on microaggressions and you're done. I think that point can't be said enough. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. And then there's this other part. I forgot who the comedian is. She's so awesome. But she was just like, you know, she was saying how white men have done such a good job of making it really comfortable for white women that he was, she's like, it's really hard to start a revolution under a duvet. You know, it's just like really difficult because you're so comfortable. And part of like, you know, is you have to give up power. That means you actually have to call out a lot of the white men that, you know, you are dealing with on a regular basis. I have a few people that I know that want to call out white men. They're white women. They're in these spaces and they want to call out white men, but also they get paid they get paid by these same people. So it's just like, how do I call them out and also still keep the privilege and the money coming in? And like, that's the challenge. It's just like, are you really willing to give it up and go straight to the power structure? Because it might also affect your bottom line. I mean, how much did we just talk about that, right, Misasha? About this idea of like women, as women, we want people to align at the very least as women first before they align with their whiteness. But just like you said, Jeff, it is so much in proximity to the white male power mm -hmm. that exists. And the sense of, I think that's where I go back to this idea of community being so important and how we have frayed in the United States quite a bit. And so many people's community is based in organizations that support some of those traditions. The church is such a cornerstone, for example. And when you call out people in the power structure there, when that's the one community outlet that you have that'll look out for you if something goes wrong. It's really, really scary. And truly, fundamentally, it is. It's, it can be devastating financially to people to disrupt that power structure. So people are in tough situations and they have tough choices to make. But that's why I continue to advocate for this idea of more social safety nets being in place for people in this country. So you don't right. go bankrupt. You don't have to live on the street just from one step that you make or comment that you make or whatever that happens that might be the beginning of this spiral. And also we have to explore the idea of like tribalism, right? Where, you know, I've spoken to people that are like progressive, but have families that are far right leaning. And for them to operate, they had to leave the entire community and everything. So how many people right now, especially white women, are in communities where it's just like, I would have to divorce my husband. I would have to leave this state. And where would I go? What would I do? I don't even have friends. Everyone else watches Fox News. Where am I supposed to do? So I think there also has to be a certain level of empathy as well of like, is there an outlet for people to go to? Because if not, then they're just going to stay where they're going to stay. Yeah, 100%. I think that, you know, and looking at how we in the U.S. had different chances along the way to create those social safety nets and didn't largely due to systemic racism, right? And how we could be in such a different place now. What would it be like if, you know, healthcare wasn't tied to our jobs and, right? Like, and childcare wasn't tied to our jobs and, or, you know, in a specific, or we would have to rely on, you know, certain societal things for that to happen. I, I think that society, that community would be so different 
and a lot of the trade-offs and the sacrifices that we now are in a a position where we have to do that wouldn't be there, right? So I agree with the empathy. Yes. I mean, there are some studies I've found that if healthcare was a right and housing was a right, there would be so many women that would leave their husband. I believe that. I believe that too. And here's this other analogy, and I didn't know whether to share this or not, but I kept thinking about it. So I was like, okay, this is not the best analogy, but when I think of like dear white women, I think of this, you know, and I'm dating myself, but like in the nineties, there was this horribly toxic man who made these videos that he made so much money on called like Girls Gone Wild. And it was mostly him carrying a camera around with those other toxic white men. And they would find mostly white women that would like flash and do all these ridiculous things. And then it's just like, it was so frustrating because then women of color, other white women are like, who are these like 4% of the population or, or 1% of the population that are doing this, that are then making a bad name for all the rest of us. And then also giving permission then for all men who are watching these horrible videos to be like, oh, that's how women are. And also that's how I should treat them. So it's just like, it's so convoluted because the first person you should be attacking or addressing is that dude. But then there's always like a few, and it doesn't need to be that many, but just a few accomplices, you know, from that gender that will like help that out. Tell me a little bit about your focus on toxic masculinity, because I feel like when we just talked about, I feel like there's like a mishmash of concerns there for women who might be in toxic situations or marriages or in an office setting. And I feel like it might be linked to the broader conversation we're having about racial solidarity as well. But when you talk about toxic masculinity, you know, how do you address that? Big, big question I know in like a... Yeah. So I was talking to this like PhD that's writing this dissertation on toxic masculinity. And she blew my mind because she was just like, I don't think we're actually using masculinity or toxic masculinity in the right way. Because when you think of Trump or anyone that's similar in that way, what are they? They're insecure. They're scared. You know, they represent none of the things that are considered masculine, like protector, you know, strong, rooted. Like when I think of like a strong masculine, I think of like Barack Obama, right? But also when I think of strong masculine, I think of the prime minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern. So she was strong in her masculine in the sense of like, hey, this is what we're going to do. You know, we're going to lock down for this certain period of time and you got to do this. But also she was very strong in her feminine to be like, but also I'm going to provide a certain level of compassion and empathy and provide you funds so that you don't feel like you have to rush back to work where you feel like you can protect your family. And when you are able to be both in both of those, that is so powerful. When I think of toxic masculinity, there you can almost see it now in so many of the leaders that are like coming down really hard on their constituents. So what's happening in Colombia right now? What's happening in the Philippines? What's happening in India? It's in Russia and also Trump. It's like, and I'm hoping this because also I'm a little scared to say this, but it's like, it's almost like the last hurrah of scared, insecure, predominantly white, pale, male, stale men that are freaking out and being like, we're going to rig elections from now on in the U.S. And blatantly, because that's how worried we are that we are losing so much power, right? So then they are constantly 
not only then expressing this view, but then they're trying to give as many as much permission to the few toxic masculine men out there to be like, do your stuff now, like start being racist now, like be open now because we're losing it. Like we're losing all of this. And they've always known, like, what was it? This one comedian was just like, we know that we've screwed people for thousands of years and we know the backlash is going to be in a certain way. And they almost think the backlash is going to be worse than what they put other people through. So an example of what I mean by that is like, do you remember doing the BLM protest when that couple came out on the lawn with their guns, right? Why did they come out? No one was messing with them. No one even cared about that house. They were walking to the mayor's house and they came out with like, you know, like automatic rifles and she had like a nine millimeter and it was like, but when you actually do research on who those that couple is, that couple has exploited people of color for so long. They are living in a mansion because of the exploitation of people of color. So they felt like, oh my gosh, chickens are coming home to roost because this is what I would have done if I was in their position. So they came out like that. And that's where I feel like a lot of that toxic masculinity comes from. I like that. All right. One last question, because I know we're talking longer than we should have, but I'm really, really excited to ask you this question. Oh, no, I love this. Yeah, I could talk about this forever. I come from a family that's super goofy and playful. Misasha can attest to this. Like we are very silly by nature. And I think that's at the core of who I am. But when I get tired, I am very much the opposite of that to the point where my kids at the summertime pool, they wanted me to like jump in the pool and play. And I'm like, dude, I just need to sit. And they're like, you're no fun. You're a sitting mom, which I took to basically be the biggest insult they could ever give me. Cause I'm like, Oh, they saw me. Like I've been found out. I am a boring ass human being right now. How do you view play? Like, cause there are times where I feel like it's actually my most natural state but also at the same time, that idea of like, you know, when you get tired, you're putting some role on, like, how does play fit into that? How do you find energy to be playful? Or is it something that is also an act? Not you particularly, but in general, how do we position it? So I define play as any joyful act where you forget about time, right? So I have a broad version of it. So there is no purpose. There is no result. You don't have anxiety about the future. You don't have regrets about the past. You are fully in the moment. You are fully in flow. So play is very broad. It's not like hula hooping or, you know, like it's bigger than that, right? So, but what I learned from my play mentor, Gwen Gordon, was like, you can't play when you are, you know, feeling a certain level of trauma, right? You can't play when you're tired. You can't play when you're angry. You can't play when you're sad. So a lot of times in order to play, you actually have to calm and soothe yourself. And a lot of times we learn how to calm and soothe ourselves from the people that took care of us the most. So if they didn't know how to soothe themselves and calm themselves down, then we take on that historical trauma. So you have to first identify what that is. And then only after you soothe, like, oh, I take showers, that gives me a bunch of ideas. Oh, I go on a walk, that gives me a bunch of ideas. I dance in my house with a costume on. That's when I get calm, right? Like all those things, all of a sudden, then you are allowing yourself to get quiet enough. And then I challenge people to actually get bored, and when they actually get bored, that's when the real play, the mischievous play, the inner child crit, you know, the inner child shows up and the inner critic gets quiet. So in this case, when your kids are like, you're boring, mom, you're not, maybe you're tired and it's okay. 
Like maybe you're just not in the play mode, but the thing that I would also challenge you, you know, or challenge anyone that isn't playing enough is a lot of times it's not an act. It's more like a frame of mind, right? So it's just like, when was the last time you showed your kids how you love to play? right? Bring them into your world, right? And then when have you allowed them to lead in their play? I see a lot of parents when they play with their kids, they're more so like supervising play where they're like, don't do that. And they're not really allowing themselves to be silly, to actually be fully immersed. But when you actually, you're like, I'm in a cloud right now. And it's like, oh, you're in a cloud. I'm in a cloud. All right, let's go in the cloud. And you were fully there with them. Then it changes. It changes. And I had a friend of mine who just, she's like maybe, you know, in her mid forties and she just picked up roller skating. And she like went down this bowl and like totally injured herself. And, you know, most adults would be like, that's ridiculous. You should never do that. You know, at your age, all of her kids think she is like a superhero because she's willing to do something brave and be like, I also don't know what I'm doing, but I'm putting myself out there and I'm putting myself in that uncomfortability and that uncertainty. And the more you're willing to do that, the more you're willing to be silly, the more you're willing to, you know, just not have shame. Like I see play as the opposite of perfection. Perfection is rooted in ego, shame, you know, being right all the time. But play is like curious. Play is experimental. Play is shameless. When I go to a wedding, I look for the shameless people, the people that are the first on the dance floor, the people that don't care what other people have to say. Those are my people. Those are the people that create psychologically safe workspaces. Why? Because they just don't care. They're just like, I want to enjoy my job. So I'm going to speak truth to power. And I don't really care what you got to say, because I'm going to bring it. And guess what? That's me. Right. So that's where I see play. And I don't know if that really fully answers your question, but just like allow yourself to be ridiculous and don't feel like you have to act like it. Just be you. That's what your kids love anyway about you. Should I show them the photo of the TRI World Day yesterday or? Well, my kids were beatboxing yesterday. So they um, they created their own what? beat. Yeah, they've been recording their own little beats for their, yeah. So I'm gonna have to get in there and beatbox with them too. because. And I think we also belittle play, right? I just saw this actually today. I think it was on CNN or something. But this guy was talking about the helicopter that just took off on the Mars rover, right? So the guy that invented it, he found his assistant when he was like 17 or 18 years old at an airplane show. Not an air, like a model airplane show where they were flying remote control airplanes around. And this guy, this was a kid that just was like starting college and he was just like, hey, we should work together. And they just started doing stuff for the next 10 years. And now they just flew the first ever helicopter on another planet, right? That's play. That's them both nerding out and doing their weirdest thing that makes them come most alive, finding each other, and then just keeping nerding out. And now they're changing the world by creating this product. So I think a lot of times we belittle stuff like that. But if you think about all of the jobs that are going to be around in 10 or 20 years, they haven't even existed yet. We forget that like TikTok's only three years old. YouTube's like less than 15 years old. Like all these things that are going to be popping up is because people are playing. And the more we actually allow ourselves to play, 
the more we actually begin to change the world. My God. <laughs> I love it. I just want to stake my claim also that my first major adult injury was doing the roller skating limbo <laughs> with my child. So I'm all here for that. Let's go. And you're reminding me. I really like this idea of the reminder that, you know what, it's okay to be tired, but also play is what I heard loud and clear was that play is an incredible tool to counteract perfectionism and really let us get back into our bodies and just be our true selves and practice that. So I like that a lot. Jeff, where can people find you? They can find me at rediscoveryourplay.com. Simply click on the Let's Play button and I have a bunch of play activities where you can learn more about how you can play more and kick ass in this world. Thank you. I love it. Thank you so much. Anything else that we need to talk about? Ooh, I think this something, this is, is important. I always like to end on this is like, so I love to uh, goodwill hunt people, right? Like, have you seen the movie Goodwill Hunting? You know, so at the end of Goodwill Hunting, you know, for anyone that hasn't seen it, Matt Damon's a genius and Ben Affleck is not. And they're best friends and they're working at a construction site. And Ben's like, yo, when are you going to take one of these high paying jobs? Because like, you shouldn't be here. And Matt's like, I'm not. I'm going to work construction. You know, we're going to raise our kids next to each other, take them to Foley Field, watch them play baseball. And that's just what we're going to do. And Ben's like, yo, if I see you here, in 20 years, I'm going to kill you. I'm literally going to kill you. And what Matt's like, oh, what, what? I owe it to myself. And he's like, no, you owe it to me because I'm going to be here in 20 years and I'm okay with that. But you are sitting on a winning lottery ticket and you're too scared to cash that in. And in the context of what we were talking about today, the winning lottery ticket is not just doing the thing that makes you come most alive, but also the winning lottery ticket is you speaking truth to power and actually saying the things that you want to speak to. And the reason why that's so important is because then you give permission for other people to show up as well. And that is what we need. You know, what Howard Thurman always says, you know, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs is for more people to come to alive, right? Coming alive is speaking truth to power. Coming alive is challenging the status quo, challenging the power structure, and also doing the thing that make, brings you the most joy and fulfillment. Because at the end of your life, you don't think of like your most productive moments, your most accomplished moments. You think of your most playful, fun, joyful moments. So my question to your people, to everyone that's listening is like, are you actually ready to show up and do the thing that makes you come most alive? Because we need you right now in that allyship. You're still here learning how to uproot systemic racism one conversation at a time. Our fresh news, we have a brand new book that's available for pre-order. So find us on bookshop.org at Dear White Women and order. And then make sure you follow the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts so you can keep getting the newest episodes each Wednesday. And don't forget to rate and review us as you share our show with your friends. Follow us on Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and Twitter at DWW Podcast. And if you love us, support our Patreon or look for ways you can bring us into your place of employment or circle of influence for a talk or ask us about our webinars and consulting work. Thanks for being here. 